Hi folks, welcome to this book club of the Lotus Eaters, where I'm joined by Josh to discuss uh, Ted Kaczynski's The Industrial Society and its future. A very uh, controversial uh, and controversially uh, published text. Um, It was uh, published in 1995, if published is even the right word. Well, yes. Because um, we should make it clear that uh, Ted Kaczynski was a terrorist and we do not support terrorism. Uh, He conducted a bombing campaign to force the New York Times to publish his manifesto, uh, which they did, and eventually he was caught because of this publishing. I think also the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, I can't remember which one, but it was two newspapers. Right. Uh, But uh, his brother recognised his handwriting, didn't he? Yeah, they, Yeah. they... the, the thing that he recognised was um, he used the phrase um, to have your cake and eat it too. Mm. He was very pedantic because the phrase to have your cake and eat it, to his mind and I suppose more generally, doesn't yeah. make sense. But everyone just knows what you mean. And because he was clearly quite pedantic and specifically so, his yeah. brother recognised that specific phrase in the manifesto um, because it was unique to him. But it's, it's not unique to him. To have your cake and eat it too, as yeah. in the correction to it. Well, yeah, the, the, but the phrase itself does make sense, because he wants to have his cake and eat it too, which is obviously something you can't do. You can't have the cake and then have eaten yes. the cake. Right? Mm-hmm. So the phrase itself does make sense. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, He's trying to do that. the impossible is what the phrase means. Yes, of course. Yeah. But it's just that he uniquely used this correction to make it grammatically correct. Oh, right. Okay. Right. Okay. That, right. Um, but, uh, but anyway, so... Um, obviously we don't support terrorism, so don't commit terrorism. Um, but there's a reason that people, I think, still talk about uh, the Industrial Society and its future. Because actually uh, Kaczynski has hit on a few themes, which other writers have done, but he does in quite a forceful way. Mm-hmm. Uh, identifying the entire industrial system as the problem, the entire industrial society is the problem. Uh, whereas other authors... Um, thought that it could be a matter of education. I'm thinking uh, C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man, actually, is very much in the same vein, where uh, man becomes a um, just a material good, a fungible material good, that is able to be ma- uh, manufactured at will, um, which is something that Kaczynski talks about in the Industrial Society. Um, this is a problem, and C.S. Lewis thought it was a lack of proper education, which, I mean, maybe it is. But Kaczynski thinks that it's the entire civilization is doomed to do this. And therefore, we need to overthrow it. Which uh, is really the central thesis, which is the very first paragraph of the very first page. Which is quite famous, so I thought I'd just read it quickly to show us what he's aiming at. Uh, The Industrial Revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race. They have greatly increased the life expectancy of those of us who live in advanced countries, but they have destabilised society, have made life unfulfilling, have subjected human beings to indignities, have led to widespread psychological suffering in the third world to physical suffering as well, and have inflicted severe damage on the natural world. The continued development of technology will worsen the situation. It will certainly subject human beings to greater indignities, inflict greater damage on the natural world, and will probably lead to greater social disruption and psychological suffering, and may lead to increased physical suffering, even in advanced countries. And that has aged very, very well, hasn't it? From yeah, 1995 has. to today. Yeah. I mean, he didn't, he, he didn't see the internet as we see it, let alone social yeah. media as we see it. So he's not wrong, and... If you're a believer in the 
man-made climate change narrative, you have to agree with him there as well. Um, and so his proposed solution is nothing short of overthrowing the concept of industrial technological society entirely. Uh, he says, we therefore advocate a revolution against the industrial system. The revolution may or may not make use of violence. It may be sudden or it may be a relatively gradual process spanning a few decades. This is not to be a political revolution. Its object is to overthrow not governments, but the economic and technological basis of the present society, which is quite straightforward, actually, but it's also incredibly far-reaching and I think very unlikely to happen. Yes, I think pretty much everyone else involved in politics would be your opponent. You're making an enemy of every single political faction in the system Yes. in, in doing that. And yes. I think he was a little bit naive to think that he could actually enact any change in the first place. Yeah. Uh, the, it obviously wasn't going to work. Uh, but as a diagnosis of the problems of modernity, he at least has one aspect of it fairly well worked out, I think. You know, he, I think he is right that the way technology is being incorporated into our daily lives is putting us on a path that is, I suppose he would call it a natural, uh, and this will have consequences. Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing this all the time. But that's not necessarily something that is that much of a revelation or a, a no. good prediction, because... No. We'd been so far removed from our own nature, like you could argue that mm. the creation of the first city or settlement was when we truly moved away from our nature of hunt, hunting and gathering. Yeah, but the the first cities were very primitive. Right? They were, so of course. Yeah, it, it, there's a there is a, a very tangible difference between like a medieval city and the modern industrial city. You know? Oh, it's come a very very long way in yeah. terms of technology, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, so anyway, so uh, Kaczynski bookends the industrial society with uh, screeds against leftism, and I think these are my oh, sorry. Sorry, no, gone. I was going to say that these are probably my favourite bits, and I think these are actually the parts where he is most on point. <laughs> yes, yeah. And um, uh, I, I think this is why Kaczynski has become popular in um, just you know non-left wing circles online uh, because. He accurately diagnosed what a leftist is uh, all the way back in 1995. He basically is saying these social justice warriors are a real problem. Uh, and because Kaczynski was a, a PhD mathematician, uh, insanely intelligent, definitely autistic, and apparently butted heads with leftists constantly in academia. And that's why he left, if I'm not mistaken. That sounds familiar. Yeah. Although I've uh, not been uh, doing any extracurricular bombing. <laughs> Good. Um, and so the second chapter of this is called The Psychology of Modern Leftism, because Ted is not, Kaczynski is not interested in going through the philosophy of leftism. He, in fact, psychologizes them and says, look, it's always the same kind of person who is a leftist. Uh, I'm going to, I'll read a quote, in fact. He says, but what is leftism? During the first half of the 20th century, leftism could have been practically identified with socialism. Today, the movement is fragmented and not clear who can probably be called a leftist. When we speak of leftists in this article, we have in mind mainly socialists, collectivists, politically correct types, feminists, gay and disability activists, animal rights activists, and the like. But not everyone associated with one of these movements is a leftist. Uh, what we are trying to get at in discussing leftism is not so much a movement or an ideology as a psychological type. 
rather, or rather a collection of related types. Thus, what we mean by leftism will emerge more clearly in the course of our discussion, uh, because he's talking specifically about the kind of... And the thing is, everyone knows what kind of person he's talking about. Absolutely. And um, sort of following on from 1995 when he wrote this, there has been a lot of work in political psychology that has found that actually there are a lot of aspects of personality types, which yeah. personality types as well can be genetic. So there's, mm. there's a sort of very clear thread for everything in which you can understand the nature of a person based on their, you could go from the genetics to their personality mm. to their politics. And there's this very yeah. clear um, delineation between yeah. them, but there's clearly also a thread running through them at the same time and you've got for example the things that Jordan Peterson points out mm. whereby he says things like um, yes high openness to experience m might make you more of a leftist yeah low conscientiousness high neuroticism which yeah. aren't exactly flattering things it's basically being open-minded to a fault yeah lazy and neurotic self-critical to a fault mm -hmm. yeah. and, and I tell you what man as the, the father of four kids they definitely have innate dispositions that they are born with mm -hmm. and you, you spend a lot of try, time trying to mediate. You don't even need to look at human beings to see this. You can look no, at yeah. animals. You can yeah, look pets. at animals. I've yeah. had plenty of pets of, mm. of the same breed and they all have their own unique personalities. Yeah. And so you, you can't say that they're necessarily socialised into it because the you know the pet owner has remained relatively static and in, in yeah. the way in which the, the the dog is brought up but yet their individuality probably stemming to from their genetics ultimately yeah informs how they behave i'm absolutely convinced that it is biological that children are born with a particular kind of disposition because i mean like in my household my kids have got wildly different temperaments and it's like okay but you're from the same parents living in the same household you haven't been socialised any differently. The same rules have applied consistently. Why is this one drawing on the walls? <laughs> um, anyway, so uh, Ted feels that the leftist exhibits the following negative character traits, which leads them to seek out leftism as an amelioration of their condition. So they have feelings of inferiority, they are over-socialised, and they lack engagement in what he calls the power process. Uh, he explains all of this, and we'll go through it shortly. Mm -hmm. uh, so the next uh, chapter is feelings of inferiority. Uh, and this is interesting uh, because it's not just, because most people when they feel inferior, it's a temporary state of affairs. So you, you know, you've met someone who's brilliant at painting or you know, sculpting or whatever, and you're not very good at that thing. And so you're like, oh, but then I think, you, you know, you go away and you feel normal mm -hmm. again. Uh, but that's not the, that's not the position of the modern leftist in his opinion. Yeah, the, the healthy perspective of that is actually excitement because you can learn something from mm. a person who's better at something than you are. Yeah. And you shouldn't necessarily take it as being a negative thing. I, I actually really quite enjoy it because it means, oh, wow, you know, not only is this good for me to be around this person, mm. they can teach me some stuff, but also it, it's humbling. It keeps your ego in check, which is always a helpful thing, I think, for everyone. Well, yeah, it's, it, it is. But I'll, I'm going to read another quote now uh, because this, is again, just the way... He re you can feel the disdain for the leftist dripping off the page, uh, which a lot of people share. Uh, by feelings of inferiority, we mean not only inferiority 
feelings in the strict sense, but the whole spectrum of related traits. Low self-esteem, feelings of powerlessness, depressive tendencies, defeatism, guilt, self-hatred, etc. Uh, we argue that modern leftists tend to have such feelings, uh, and these feelings are decisive in determining the direction of modern leftism. Obviously true. Uh, and so um, the he says the leftists are they use the marginalized groups as a way of kind of ameliorating their own uh, negative feelings about themselves, mm -hmm. which again seems to be true. I've, I've got a lot to say about this actually, in that I think some people may question, well, a lot of leftists don't really have the self-awareness mm. to necessarily know that they're mm -hmm. at the bottom of the hierarchy, but it's a very innately uh, encoded biological thing. Mm. Like, Human beings are very social creatures, and social mm. creatures have an intuitive sense of social hierarchy. Yeah. And so, even if they haven't, you know, formally got a, a reasoning as to why they might be at the bottom of the hierarchy, they just have this this feeling that they're not appreciated. And you, you, sometimes you can hear them explicitly say so, like, "People treat me poorly. I'm, I'm mm. you know, I'm not treated very well. I need to turn to politics, which is basically um, what weak people do." if they're not being treated well by the people around them, is they start to use force, which politics is, in a sense. Yeah. Well, it absolutely is. But there's a reason that there's a stereotype of what a male feminist looks like. Uh, fat, greasy, balding, disgusting, <laughs> wiry beard. Like, there's a, there's a reason. It, like, women aren't attracted to that person. You know, they're not, they don't get dates. Okay, well, I need to do something to get around women. Mm -hmm. So, of course you do, but, you know. It kind of ties into that hilarious phenomenon of all of the sort of... 2015 feminists now have sort of archetypes of masculinity as their partners. Yes. Like big, hairy, yeah. muscly bikers and yeah. that sort of yeah. thing. It's like, well, this, this really doesn't mesh very well with what you're saying. But he's, he's got a great uh, take here about these people. He says, those who are the most sensitive about politically incorrect terminology, again, they've been doing this for years, folks, uh, are not the average black ghetto dweller, Asian immigrant, abused woman, or disabled person, but a minority of activists, many of whom do not even belong to any oppressed group, but come from the privileged strata of society. Political correctness has its stronghold among university professors, who have secure employment with comfortable salaries, and the majority of whom are heterosexual white males from upper-middle-class upper families. Totally true. Totally true. It's true then as it is now. Probably more true now, if anything, yeah. Yeah, and so the the problem with these um, the the sort of uh, the Lenin the bio Leninist constituency that he has identified the sort of uh, spiteful mutants, as it were, <laughs> uh, who are resentful that they were not chosen by fate to be at the top of some hierarchy of you know some natural order, is that they hate strength, and this I think is uh, a particularly cutting piece. He says. Leftists tend to hate anything that is an image of being strong, good, and successful. They hate America, they hate Western civilization, they hate white males, they hate rationality. The reasons that leftists give for hating the West, etc., do not clearly correspond with their real motives. They say they hate the, they hate the West because it is warlike, imperialistic, sexist, ethnocentric, and so forth. But where these same faults appear in socialist countries or in primitive cultures, the leftist finds excuses for them. Or at best, he grudgingly admits that they exist, whereas he enthusiastically points out, and often greatly exaggerates, these faults when they appear in Western civilization. Thus, it is clear that these faults are not the leftist's real motive for hating America and the West. He hates America and the West because they are strong and successful. He is so spot on there. Yes. And I think that... 
totally true. The, the actual psychological mechanism going on here is that they have the emotions, the negative emotions, mm. first and foremost, and then they sort of come up with post hoc rationalizations after the fact for why they feel the way they do. Yeah. That is, is their attempt at understanding their unconscious reasoning, which, you know, is difficult to a certain yeah. extent. You know, not everyone gets it right. But this is something that's rife amongst pretty much everyone, yeah. myself included. So I'm not necessarily, you know, putting myself on a pedestal, but at least I know that it's possible to do that. And mm. I think many people don't necessarily have the self-awareness to realise that maybe they're scapegoating their own feelings because if they actually confronted why they felt the way they did, it would be too negative for them to actually cope with it. And they don't, they kind of intuitively shy away from negative emotion mm. because they are cowards by sort of disposition. I Most people aren't prepared to look in the mirror. Yes. That's what it is. Mm. Jordan Peterson said that, you know, 95% of a person's personality is dead wood that needs to be burned off. They're not prepared to do that. They're not prepared to just strip down and go, okay, yeah, honestly, I need to change. Mm -hmm. I need to improve. No, instead, the entire world can change. It's the West that's evil. It's this fact that standards exist. It's not me failing the standards. Yeah. Um, and so anyway, he, uh, he recognises that essentially leftism, in total, is just an attack on reality. Uh, he says, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm, I know I'm going through some quotes, but they're just such gold, right? Modern leftist philosophers tend to dismiss reason, science, and objective reality and insist that everything is culturally relative. It is true that one can ask serious questions about the foundations of scientific knowledge and about how, if at all, the objective reality can be defined. But it is obvious that the modern leftist philosophers are not simply cool-headed logicians systematically analysing the foundations of knowledge. They are deeply involved emotionally in their attack on truth and reality. They attack these concepts because of their own psychological needs. For one thing, their attack is an outlet for hostility, and to the extent that it is successful, it satisfies the drive for power. More importantly, the leftist hates science and rationality because they classify certain beliefs as true, i.e. successful or superior, and other beliefs as false, i.e. failed and inferior. The leftist's feelings of inferiority run so deep that he cannot tolerate any classifications of some things as successful or superior and other things as failed or inferior. This also underlies the rejection of many leftists for the concept of mental illness and the utility of IQ tests. Leftists are antagonistic to genetic ex explanations of human abilities or behaviour because such explanations tend to make some persons appear superior or inferior to others. Leftists prefer to give society the credit or the blame for an individual's ability or lack of it. Thus, if a person is inferior, it's not his fault, but society's, because he has not been brought up properly. That's just spot on. It's it? totally true. That is exactly what they think. They, and it, <clears throat> I mean, philosophically, it comes from the overwhelming drive towards equality, but the only people who want equality are the people who are admitting, I'm not as good as that fellow over there. Well, it's, it's implicit in the request for equality in the first place, isn't yeah. it? They, yeah. it? It's funny that some of the people that say the most racist things in the 21st century are the people that meant um, kind of posing themselves mm. as being on the sides of the group they're being rude about. Yeah, it, it automatically assumes that that group is inferior, actually. Mm. And, uh, you know, that's a, a point that Kaczynski very accurately makes. Uh, he, he finishes off this uh, chapter by just saying, look, they're not compassionate in any way, shape or form. They're in fact masochistic. You know, they like to take a kicking and uh, they're not uh, good people. I mean, he makes a great point. It's like, look, wh why would you make these points if you genuinely believe them? 
in such a dogmatic and hostile way. You know, you're not trying to persuade the person you're talking to that, hang on, we've got a problem. We're doing things wrong. What you're trying to say is you're a terrible person. I hate you. And it's like, yeah, exactly. There's no attempt at persuasion there at all. They're not being reasonable in any way, shape or form. They are, in fact, enjoying lashing themselves. I think dogmatism always tends to be convincing yourself, in a sense. Mm. If, you're, if you're convinced of your arguments truly, then you feel like they can carry themselves without any sort of rhetorical devices. You can just explain it very coolly and rationally. But also, you don't need the sort of extreme emotional investment that dogmatic people have. So why, if this is true, and you can't be persuaded otherwise because reality doesn't seem to be that way, do you need to be so over the top about it? You know, it's like there's a genuine question. There. Well, it's it's also um, self-evident in people's delivery when mm. talking about politics that it doesn't go down well. Uh, you've you've got to have a certain emotional possession in your delivery to mm. not be able to read the room well enough that yeah. you know and screaming sound... and shouting doesn't make people believe you. Yeah, and to sound persuasive, mm. you know, in, in the first place. But uh, I, I love the way he sort of finishes the chapter. He says. If our society had no social problems at all, the leftists would have to invent problems in order to provide themselves with an excuse for making a fuss. <laughs> it's totally true. And this is where we've arrived at now. Like, all allegations of, like, systemic injustice. And it's like, well, what's the problem? Well, you know, the air conditioning's too cold for women in the offices. It's like, really? Really? That's the extent of the problem, is it? Men are making crude jokes about women in women's absence. Really, Sadiq Khan? Step in and say, mate, shall we? What, because a guy made a joke? Is that really? <laughs> like, literally, this is the extent of your social problem, is it? Anyway, moving on to the next chapter, which is over-socialization. Uh, so you're a psychologist, so you can uh, fact-check this afterwards. Uh, psychologists use the term socialization to designate the process by which children are trained to think and act as society demands. A person is said to be well-socialized if he believes in and obeys the moral code of his society and fits in well as a functioning part of that society. It may seem senseless to say that many leftists are over-socialized since the leftist is perceived as a rebel. Nonetheless, the position can be defended because leftists are not such rebels as they seem. And this, again, it took me a long time to realize this, actually, where he's going with this. But um, he explains that the, the leftist is not in objection to society's values. In fact, he is weaponizing society's own values against it. He is pushing on the open door to open it even further. Say, well, look, you're a society that values tolerance and diversity and is against racism. And therefore, I'm going to hoist you by your own petard here. Because why? You know, why would you do that to someone unless you're being malevolent or cruel to them, right? That's entirely spot on. Um, I don't know whether you're going to go a bit more into over-socialization. Right. But um, I actually recently did an episode of Contemplations where I talked about why cities are bad. Right. And we were talking about um, sort of population density and how being around lots of people, you're not adapted to be mm. around lots of people all the time. We're rural creatures, really. You know, if, you're, if you think back to how human beings used to live in a more natural state of being, closer to how we would have lived um, in, in hunter-gatherer times, we, we would have seen strangers as a serious threat, wouldn't we? Mm. we? We wouldn't just be tolerating them. And this sort of instinct doesn't go away in our minds. It's going mm. to continually eat away at us. And as we're constantly surrounded by noise, lots of visual stimuli, it wears us down 
and I think it makes people stressed and resentful and you can't help that because it's unconscious you don't have any control over it and yet this sort of over socialization this this desire to always be around people is like mm. a sort of coping mechanism it's a, a distraction from the world around you mm. and I find that there's this weird phenomenon of people who can't bear to spend time on their own and I think that's mm. a symptom of someone being deeply mentally unwell oh, you have to constantly be in the company of other people then you can't stand your own company yeah that's uh, by definition why that's going on yeah and if you can't stand your own company why should other ser- people yeah there's why also, would anyone else want to spend any amount of time with you? And, and if you're not yet, pleasant to be with on your own. Mm, <laughs> yeah. And I think people are driving them, each other on a downward spiral. And I mm. think certainly cities, which are a product of industrial society, have helped drive people mad. Yeah. Because when our brains are not adapted to live in this kind of environment, I think human beings are rural creatures. We're healthiest when we've got enough space. The, the English certainly are. Yes. Like one of the things, the English never really properly adapted cities at all but the the, the there's there's also layers to this because okay it's one thing moving to a city but if there's a relatively homogenous culture there so you, the interactions you can have with people are predictable and you can speak the same language you have the same moral values okay well fine it may be a, a, you know, a level of stress to be around just so many people all the time but if there's a familiarity about these people a sort of unconscious familiarity that's not such a problem it, but, but when you're forcing diversity and importing people from all around the world who are all strangers to each other, let alone the native people who are living there, that's surely got to be added levels of stress. It right? certainly is. And I think that if you live in a sort of homogenous culture with shared values, yeah. it allows you to keep your guard down more. Yeah, yeah. But it's still not an ideal situation in my mind. It's, it's not ideal, but like, it, I mean, I, just, I remember that things didn't used to be this way. I mean, it's, yeah. even in my lifetime, I remember it being very, very different. Yeah. I mean, they, they, like, there used to be a time when people didn't need to lock their doors. I know. I, that sounds crazy, doesn't it? I, I lived in that time for a while. Yeah. It just sounds doesn't crazy. anymore, yeah. Yeah, no, like, there's, there, there's definitely something there. But anyway, so um, he points out that, yes, the rebels are not actually rebels because they're, they're just fighting in line with the system and saying, well, I'm disappointed that the system isn't living up to the most perfect expression of its own ideals. And so really, you're not rebelling against the system at all. Essentially, they're taking on the position of a hall monitor, you know, a a sort of Karen for the system, to whip the other people in the system. But if you think about the sort of archetype of someone like that, Mm. they're someone who externalises their problems normally. It's like a hall monitor, for example, in school. They would be the quintessential nerd, wouldn't they? They would be the people that nobody liked. Because yeah. they would tell on, yeah. you know, tell the teacher. Yeah. They would use the system to their own advantage to leverage their position at the bottom of the hierarchy. Yes, and the, this doesn't attack the system at all. It reinforces it. In fact, it's, it's the direct act of reinforcing the system, which is what these leftists are doing. They're saying, no, the system is good. I accept everything about it, and in fact, I want it to go further. And so it's not in any way a rebellion. So no leftist is in any way a rebel. And he's completely right. And again, to have essentially identified this on his own in 1995, I mean, it took me a long time and it took me, you know, Mm. a lot of discussion with a lot of people and a lot of exposure to a lot of leftist media to come to these same conclusions. Yeah, for me, I think it took lots of corporations putting out rainbow flags like they've been conquered by the Rainbow Reich. Yeah, yeah. It was quite disturbing, yeah. 
So the next uh, chapter is called The Power Process. And this is interesting because I think there's obviously something to it, right? Uh, he, the, the Power Process is Kaczynski's view on how humans essentially self-actualize in the world, how they feel like they are in command of their own destinies, right? Mm -hmm. This is kind of a, almost a, a Nietzschean notion, isn't it? Yeah, it is, yeah. Um, I'll read a quote. He says, Human beings have a need, probably based in biology, for something that we will call the power process. This is closely related to the need for power, which is right, widely recognized, but it's not quite the same thing. The power process has four elements. The three most clear cuts of these are what we call goal, effort, and attainment of goal. Everyone needs to have goals whose attainment requires effort and needs to succeed in attaining at least some of his goals. The fourth element is more difficult to define and may not be necessary for everyone. We will call it autonomy, and we'll discuss it later. Uh, and so basically, it's a, a person feeling like they are free. That is essentially it. So they can do something, that they uh, set themselves a goal, go through the difficulty of attaining the goal, and then having the satisfaction of having that goal, and... He, he says that some people want autonomy doing this. And I have to say, I'm one of those people, right? I'm very much one of those people who I want to be doing the thing I want to be doing. I mean, there are lots of people who can join a team and, you know, join someone else's thing. And I'm sure this is just how human cooperation works. Mm. You know, you need a certain percentage of people who are just irascible uh, and can't, and have to, it has to be their goal. But other people are like, no, I'm happy to work, you know, in a team someone else's goal. Uh, and that's fine, you know. But, um, and so if a person doesn't go through the power process, they become depressed, defeatist, and sad. And this is probably all completely backed up by psychological literature, isn't it? It all sounds perfectly reasonable to me. What it, it seems to be describing, at least in the psychological literature, um, there's, the term is normally agency. Mm -hmm. And it's talking about um, sort of, what's the word? You're, you're looking to maximise your personal agency, which, you know, you could use other words to describe it. You could say personal freedom. Mm. And what Kaczynski's talking about there are the subjective expressions of said freedom. I think agency is the right term, though. It is, yeah. Because I mean, that's the one that's used in the psychological literature. And I, I very much agree with that characterization yeah. because not only does it make sense from an academic standpoint in that it is, it's not necessarily um, relative to your circumstances. Mm. You could have appalling circumstances but feel like you have agency over them that's yeah. why you know you can go to an african village where they live in mud huts and you know live what we would deem a, a, a really poor life and they're happy because they feel like they're able to cope with it they they're know. in control of it exactly least, yeah. to watch the full video please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com